All right. How about that, church? Thank you, guys. That felt right. Um, real quick, um, if there's anybody in here who can translate sign language, George and Tierra are here, and, uh, and our normal translators are not here. If not, it's not like, the, it not like you're going to understand what I say either anyway, so it's, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. But um, if there is, that would be great. Um, okay, if not, um, I was going to start with this. Welcome to uh, the United States, where post-apocalyptic fiction is now filed under current events. Um, seriously, as we have faced challenges in the church, um, not being able to gather together is certainly one of those things that we have grieved, but probably the greatest thing that we have grieved are the ministry opportunities that have slipped away because of quarantine and coronavirus. Um, this week was to begin Royal Family Kids Camp, um, which is not happening because of all of this. And so I want to quickly pray for the, all of these ministries as you have um, student ministries and and men's ministries, children's ministries, all these different things that are really, in so many ways, the core of what our church is, um, that are greatly restricted and hamstrung. It's not that God isn't sovereign. That's what John and his team led us through today over and over again, was to remind us God is sovereign. Um, and, and yet, from our perspective, we grieve this. And so, um, I really would love to, uh, to take a second and pray that God would guide and that, there, that He would have, so to speak, his plan be in place for each of these specific situations that, that there are other ways that he is reaching these families and reaching into people's lives. And so, Father, you are sovereign um, in our um, desire to minister in your name and sometimes in our pride. Um, it's hard for us to imagine the work that you do without us. I know you are working according to your good works and according to your good will. And I pray that you would do that in ways, and any of those that we get to hear about would be um, sure to be encouraging to us. So Lord, I pray that you are reaching to the families of foster kids right now. I pray that you will be reaching into the families of all of the children who are usually here on Sunday mornings, who are here on Wednesday nights, who are here on Sunday evenings, and in so many different ways that we uh, impact the next generation of believers. And I pray that families are, are engaging well, that they are leading well, that they are teaching well, that they are serving well, that they are loving and worshiping well. well. That's the core we have said over and over again. We are not afraid of not having church services on Sunday mornings because the core of your church, of your kingdom on earth in the church is the family. And, and, uh, and so we know that that can still be happening at home where people are right now. So we're grateful to you, Father. Empower that through the magnificent and limitless power of your Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> so as we take a moment and continue to look in our Bibles, we're in Daniel chapter 4, but we may not get there today. Um, so in Daniel chapter 4, one of the themes, we talked about themes, John uh, Keeling took us through some of the themes of, of Daniel chapter 4 last week, and, and actually of the whole Bible last week. Um, when, da when John and I first talked, John had like seven or eight themes he wanted to cover. Um, I was like, i I mean, good luck. <laughs> like, you got 35 minutes, bro. And so it, luckily he picked one or two and dove, and I know you loved that, and hopefully we'll see some more of those things. We certainly will be seeing those unpacked. Um, these ideas that there are these things in the Bible that in some way are hidden and in other ways aren't even subtle, and we're going to get to many of those and maybe hopefully one that will really encourage you today. This is our segue to chapter 4. As John mentioned last week, Daniel chapter 4, any sermon, anywhere, any commentary, anywhere, the focus of Daniel chapter 4 is going to be a lesson about pride. 
Um, of course it is. It's, that's, you, would be, you would be abusing the passage to try to teach this passage and not how the message at least touch on this concept of pride. That's clearly what's going on here. So I started with a passage built on this idea, and then I started working backwards, creating a preamble to this message about pride, um, this pivot point of the series of Daniel 4 unavoidably assaults our pride. It may not do so for several weeks uh, in a really vocal way, depending on how you engage with this passage. Um, Even the beginning of the passage, we may not arrive today. We'll see. So I want to offer some foundations today. Ways that Christians can respond to crises other than pride. Um, Pride is the natural way for humans to engage in crises. Because we immediately turn any crisis we face into something that's about us. That's the natural temptation. It's the natural tendency. Certainly when you are from a very independent population, um, you're going to see that even more. Um, When we see pandemics, political unrest, murder hornets, poverty, orphans, abortion, euthanasia, presidential tweets, elections, or for followers of The Voice, thunderstorm not winning what the heck? We have to remind ourselves God is sovereign in these type of situations, right? And so, for those of you who don't, that meant nothing to you, but for those of you who did, you're grieving with me. So, I am proud it was a godly man who did win, but like, really. Okay, so, we deal with this, our natural temptation, the the good news, and this is actually for us. Here's what's so cool about Scripture. Uh, A book written up to about 2,000 years ago and working backwards from many different authors under many different cultures, Um, With so many different perspectives, it is fascinating, it is powerful, it is proof of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that the message here is still directly about us. (laughs) As Jeff Lay said in our um, leadership board retreat yesterday, this is is the reality of this. Our our natural tendency is to think of of the Bible or the gospel or whatever as being about about Sunday mornings for us. That's what it's really about, it's about Sunday mornings. Um, instead of saying, this is what's supposed to saturate and integrate into every part of our lives. This is the gospel. The good news can actually fix what is truly broken in you and what is truly broken in me. That is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ can fix what is broken and sick in our, sick in our culture. This book, God's Holy Word, has truth to speak to us now, today. Pride, as Americans... We are known for our pride. As Texans, we're really known for our pride. As Baptists, we're known for our pride. But the truth is, as humans, we are known for our pride. Maybe the defining character trait of human beings is pride, which is not, makes no sense given how embarrassingly powerless we are. Any race that could create an entire philosophical movement that the vast majority of people follow that is based on themselves, humanism, is a ridiculously proud group of people. That's laughable. If you told people, listen, I am the solution to all my own problems, you would get laughed at, and you should be. So why is it that we go, no, no, we are the solution to all of our own problems, now somehow makes sense to us? It, It doesn't. That's us. What about me? What about my needs? What about my wisdom, my insight, my rights, my demands? The but me concept 
is going to come in conflict with everything we're going to see in Daniel chapter 4. My thesis throughout this entire conversation is going to be that Christ followers can be rescued from the narrow response of pride. That's going to be my thesis that we're going to work at today. So let's start with one of the crises we wrestled with this last week in particular with a little biblical education. I took the staff through this and several of the staff said this needs to be in the sermon Sunday, so it is. Um, we build the foundations, this, this is foundations themselves are founded on and founded in God's Word, so that's where we're going to go. So let's start with this, this idea. What is the biblical origin of this concept we call race? Just take a second and talk about this. I believe that the word race is a misnomer. I think it's a ridiculous misnomer. I, am, I think it's part of our problem. I think words matter and words mean something. And the fact that we refer to the variations in skin tone as an issue of race, I think is a mistake. I don't know exactly why that term began to be used. But think in terms of this. Do we have different races of roses? Do we go, look at all those races of roses. No, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. That would, be, like, that would make no sense at all. Do we say races of, of, these, of the dogs? Are those different races of lab? The phenotype is different. They look different. Their, their skin tone, or at least their fur, is a different color. Is that, is that, is those different, ra- by the way, aren't dogs awesome? <laughs> we got, I think we got another one I found that I really, uh-huh. Yeah, I know. See? And look at that. Are those different races of puppies? No. This is the other one. The one I also liked was this one because the white one looks so confused. And I don't know about you. I identify right now. So there is a, there is a sense in which we go, listen, this is a, these aren't different races. And I think that's an issue that, we've, that, that I think confuses us. And I don't see a biblical concept that defends this idea. The group of A group of humans based on shared qualities. That's the word race. A group of humans based on shared qualities. It used to really reference language. And then it referenced location, where you were from. You were this Ethiopian race, or you were the Kenyan race, or or you were the the Scottish race. And then but that didn't make any sense either. None of that makes any sense. The word race doesn't really fit with any of this at all. Language, nationality, physical traits, it's a sociological distinction. It is not in any way a scientific distinction. What we call race today is not a good scientific distinction at all. Um, two two um, European geneticists were compared with a Korean geneticist. They took two European geneticists, ran their genome, and compared it to a Korean geneticist's genome. The two Europeans had less in common with each other than they each had with the Korean in their genome. Because... It's ridiculous to define race that way. You cannot do it genetically. Of course, there are certain traces. There are certain um, trackers that you can look at and tell, but you have to start in reverse. You have to start and go, I'm looking for this certain sign to show that these people would have been different when they were something other than just a skeleton. Um, it's, it's wild. Obviously, there are different markers like the noun of melanin in our skin. They can find that kind of stuff genetically, but that's, there may still be much more in common between two people of different races. I don't like the term. It's just a case of skin color. Even a moron can spot that difference. That's why morons do. And we create a huge distinction based on that. And then not only do we say there's a dip, by the way, there is, there are different experiences between what we call races now, but that's really in reverse because we created this concept called races. Then we created different experiences and most of it is embarrassing to most people involved. 
So where did he come from biblically? Is there a biblical concept here? There is. Um, Genesis 9, 18, and 19. Those of you who've been in church for a long time, you're going to know where this comes from, but I think you're going to enjoy this. Genesis 9, 18, and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So we see this distinction after the great flood, civilization has been wiped out, and you have, um, you have just this family. And Genesis chapter 10, they build on this, the Jewish concept here. The sons, these are the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, um, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras, and the sons of Gomer, etc. And so this, this is how G- Genesis chapter 10 breaks down, is it's each of these different sons and who their sons were and how that spread out and, and all this different type of stuff. Um, verse 5, from these the coastland people spread to their lands, each to his own language, by their clans, into their nations. So again... Nations is a distinction we could go with, whatever. Chapter 10 goes on like this, and it creates these headings. I've got three things that show you kind of the classical Jewish way of understanding this. First, we have Japheth, and these are the, these are the sons of Japheth, generally speaking, the Indo-European and Western Asia and of India. I mean, Asia and Europe. Um, so you've got these different children and where allegedly they came from and what people descended from each of these children and or grandchildren, Right? Again, some of you are very aware of this. Some of you, this is, this is brand new that you didn't know this was even in the Bible. Then we have Ham, the, the second son. So Ham, the, the descendants of Ham are going to be the Ethiopians, Libyans, Canaanites, Egyptians, etc. Good. And then Shem, the people of the Middle Eastern, Southern Asia, etc., So in the minds of people to whom racial distinctions were considered important, a shorthand was created, Japheth equals white, Ham equals black, Shem equals Asian and Arabic. Now, even from the strict Jewish biblical perspective, this falls apart. It's not that simple. It's not even, in fact, it's nowhere near that simple. Um, All types of teaching came from this that is not in the Bible. It's kind of like, you know, when you're watching a movie based on a book and it seems like the screenwriter lost their copy of the book at some point and just starts going like, you know what, how about this? And let's start adding in this and you know what would be great is this. <clears throat> and if you've read the book, you're going, I, I mean, of the stuff I liked best, you've now taken out of this whole story. Well, that's kind of what happened with this concept of race biblically. So if you've been in church for a long time, especially if you've been in church in the South, maybe you've even heard people preach about, for example, the curse of Canaan. How Canaan was cursed and was supposed to serve the rest of his family. And literally that was used in some writings to defend the idea that Ham's children, the African nations, are supposed to serve the others. But you already heard, if you just heard me even say that, it wasn't Ham that was cursed, it was Canaan, not Ham. And so it would just be a specific race of people who, by the way, weren't particularly probably dark-skinned. The Canaanite race is essentially non-existent now. But then obviously those are the ones who are going to be conquered by the Jewish people. And, and so that, that's clearly a reference, a prophecy about that. In any case, there's no way you can do this. There's this mysterious curse against the one of the children of Ham, Canaan. Um, at some point, there's been people so dedicated to racist thought that when they lost their copies of the Bible or just forgot to read it or whatever, they came away with this wall-eyed, bigoted interpretation of the mark of Cain. Maybe interreligion marriages for the Israelites. 
It, it probably would be shocking for many, even in here sometimes, to hear there's no biblical mandate against interracial marriage. It's not there. It's, it's absolutely not there. In fact, some of the people that the Jewish people are commanded not to intermarry with are sons of Shem, would even be their race that they're not supposed to intermarry with. It's clear that it's based on their following of Yahweh. That is the, it's, the, it's in, a religion, in a religious marriage that is forbidden, inter, interracial, which was, again, not even a concept really at this point. You may, however you grew up understanding <laughs> these deep, ancient Hebrew Scripture passages, which, by the way, give everyone headaches to try to interpret correctly, everyone who takes it honestly. They're all incredibly difficult to interpret, incredibly difficult to integrate with things that we have from history, which essentially is nothing from this era of history. This is, this is all the history we have in some of this. Here's the first thing that all Christians could be on the same page about when we react to crises, especially if they involve race, but honestly, any crises. One, number one, that the gospel is for all people. For the entire race of humanity, the gospel, that's who the gospel is for, the entire race of humanity. Conversion from worshiping any God of the world to following Christ and worshiping God alone is a call for everyone. This truth should define our response in any crisis. Another good cool moment of spotting something not subtle, like like when John showed you all the different connections of trees, which we'll, we'll unpack even further. That's pretty neat, especially if you're an outdoor person like most of us in Tyler, like we love our trees and like how cool this, this cool thing. So if you've got your Bible, in fact, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. So in the book of Acts, you have like Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives one sermon and 3,000 conversions happen. Remember that? I mean, 3,000 converts in a moment. We didn't hear anything about them. 3,000 converts, okay, good. It ends, that chapter ends with, and, and daily the proper amount of people were added to the church, right? Thousands being converted every day as this new gospel spreads its way into the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. But then you track and track and track, and you get to Acts chapter 8, and you get this little section about a single conversion, the story of one person being converted. In Acts chapter 8, who is the one person being converted? Acts chapter 8. Acts, is nine, Acts 9 is Saul, right? Who is Acts 8? The Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip the evangelist, not Philip the apostle, Philip the evangelist gets supernaturally transported by the Holy Spirit to a situation where he can engage with a single individual, an Ethiopian eunuch, who for some reason, and by the way, he's not just any African, he's a special African. He is in the court of Candace the, the queen of Ethiopia, again, <clears throat> I don't know my history well enough to know anything about that part of the world, um, the, the royal line. But here you have a very special person, and he's studying from Isaiah, and magically, supernaturally, Philip shows up, answers his questions, the man's converted, baptized, and then Philip vanishes. One out of the tens of thousands who have converted? What, what, what a weird story. Then the very next chapter, Acts chapter 9, we get the conversion of a single individual. Who is this single individual who converts in Acts chapter 9? This dude named Saul. Who is Saul? What is Saul? There you go. That one. That's right. What is Saul? What's his race? What child of Noah is he descended from? He's, he's well, that's Benjamin, but what, what child of Noah? That's the, he's Shemite, right? He's a Semite. He's a Jew. Is he just any Jew? How does he describe himself? 
He's a Jew of Jews, right? You want a Jew? Those are Jews. I'm, I'm Jew squared, right? <laughs> I can top them all. I got the, I'm a better Jew than all the, any other Jew you can find to put up against me. And he is converted right here, a single individual converted in Acts chapter 9. How about Acts chapter 10? The very next chapter, we get a single individual and then his whole household, a single individual converted. Who is that? Cornelius. Who is Cornelius? He's a centurion. He's a Roman. This is hidden, but not subtle. Here we have in three chapters in the book of Acts, right the pivot point of the book of Acts, we have the conversion of a child of Ham, a conversion of the child of Shem, and a conversion of the child of Japheth. Right here. You're a Jewish audience, you read this and you go, oh, look, the gospel is for everyone. Uh, in fact, when I taught this with a group of, of African-American, uh, a mixed group, African-Americans and others, um, one time I taught through this and one of the African-American men said, um, actually had tears in his eyes, which again, part of the, the privilege of being of the majority is that I don't notice this stuff. And he said, um, he goes, until today I thought I, would been, I was getting the joy of being welcomed into the white man's religion. And I was like, I mean, at least it's the Jewish religion. Like, I think it's the Jewish religion that all of us as Gentiles are supposed to be grateful we got to be grafted in, right? All of us as Gentiles. But notice who was converted first of the three. Ham was. The child of Ham. If anything, we get to be a part of the religion that Ham, the child of Ham responded to before the child of Japheth did. Uh, for those of us who are Roman descent. This is, this is, again, hidden, but it's not at all subtle. Any, any Jewish reader would read this and go, look at that. It's for everybody. This would have been offensive, difficult for them to hear that. Not because of an African, but because of probably more the Roman than anybody would have been hard for them to stomach, the thought of that. The fact that the good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone is our understanding. His kingdom, neither race, social status, nor sex define us. Being in his kingdom defines us. Galatians 3, 25 and 28 through 28, which most of you are aware of. Now the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus, put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The kingdom identity transcends all other identities and allows us to love in unique ways others that non-followers of Jesus don't get to do. This is really cool. In Christ, we are lovers of justice and mercy, of faith and grace, and the longing for justice is always part of our response to any crisis because we are followers of Jesus Christ who loves justice all human life is sacred to us. All human life, all are created the image of God. Life, he, because God treasures all people. And as his followers, here's what's wild. We don't just bear his image, we bear his name. We aren't just his treasure, we are his adopted children. We come from a position of being able to say, we can love freely. We can risk all. Because we have nothing to fear. We have no rights we get to be a part of the kingdom as a gift. The abortion example comes up a lot. It's, it's, I consider it the greatest injustice of our age. I hope that a hundred years from now, they look back on us and see us as barbarians because of abortion. I think any culture 
um, any, any race of people, and this is a place where race does apply, the race of humanity, the, the, all other forms of death combined every year average around 50 to 55 million worldwide, all forms of death every single year, in addition to those 50 to 55 million deaths, all forms of death, 50 to 55 million a year, there are 50 to 55 million abortions. Not only is it the leading cause of death, it some years is more than all other forms of death combined. It is a horrific thing for a race to kill itself at that rate. It's unthinkable. So when I reference, hey, 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 I'm pro-life about this. I'm, I'm pro-life in this. Sometimes someone who's on the other side of the fence will go, like, oh, are you, are you pro-life or are you just anti-abortion? You ever had that? Are you pro-life? Just, and I'm like, what are you... I'm pro-life, and the part of that that I'm pointing out about right now is that I'm anti-abortion, because abortion is anti-life, therefore I'm anti-abortion because I'm pro-life. Church, let's be able to wrap our brains around that when we have a population of our culture, especially brothers and sisters, who say something like, you know what, black lives matter. I don't have to approve of all of the agenda of a movement or of a website or of anything like that to say that if I go, I thought, I thought all lives matter, that they would go, right of, right, of course all lives matter. The lives that don't seem to matter <clears throat> as much as they should sometimes are the black ones. And I'm pointing attention to that, that one specific injustice. I'm not saying the others don't. I'm saying it's the same thing as the abortion argument. Yes, of course I'm pro-life, not just anti-abortion. But I am anti-abortion. Yes, of course all lives matter, but what we're talking about right now is the fact that there seems to be an injustice in our culture sometimes that black lives don't seem to matter at the same rate. That's a worthwhile conversation. We don't have to be afraid of that kind of stuff. As Christians, we can go like, good, let's have that conversation. If that's true, if there's injustice, you know, here's a funny thing about us. We hate injustice because our Savior hates injustice. So we, can, we get to engage in that conversation. We don't have to run from that kind of stuff. We get to do that. Of course, the, brother, the lives of my brothers and sisters with more melanin than I have, their lives matter. And if they don't think it does, if they don't seem like it does, well, let's figure out how to change that. I'm all about that. We have this other way. Think of the amazing advances we made over the last 400 years. We can, we can talk about, we can celebrate that in the midst of it. How far we've come, and yet, what still needs to be done. Christians have this other way. Not the evils and errors and well-intentions and foolishness of the world from this group of people, and not the evils and errors and well-intentioned foolishness in the world in the other side of the group of people. Christians always have a third way, which is following Christ. That's why Tony Evans' beautiful picture of us as the referees on the field. Not this team, not that team. We're the refs. We don't answer to this team. We don't answer to that team. We answer to a totally different group of people with a totally different rule book, a totally different king. That's literally the picture Christ uses all through Scripture. We're, we're citizens of another place. We're only ambassadors here. We're strangers here. We're sojourners here. So we get to be different than everybody else. We're not like everybody else. We're freaks. And that should stand out. That should be pointed out. And we're freaks willing to suffer. We're freaks willing to be put aside. We're, we're willing to accept these kind of things because this isn't our home. You don't love me here? Well, my king told me you wouldn't. Now, if that's just because we're jerks, then... The king's not happy about that either. But if it's because we're trying to follow him, that's how this works. We, not our way, 
We so are quick in our pride to follow our way. What am I comfortable with? What do I like to say? What do I want to post on social media? When the truth is everything should come from, but I'm not my own. There's a different way for us. That's that's pride, and our following of Christ should integrate and saturate every aspect of our lives, even our identity, especially our politics, should be subordinated to Him. The way we treat our neighbors, speaking the truth in love, sharing our faith with grace, we can empathize even if we don't approve. We can love even if we don't excuse. We get to serve and minister to and understand and listen to and love the immigrant and the Border Patrol agent, which is what we did when we took a mission team down to the border. We don't have to pick. Why do we have to pick which herded group of people to minister to? We don't, have, here's, we don't have to do that. We're not from here. We get to minister to this herding group of people. And the people they're hurting, we get to minister to them. And the people they're hurting, we get to minister to them. This is an amazing, cool thing about being a Christian is that we get to do this. And our pride and our discomfort, often we don't. We actually, why do we get to minister to the immigrant and the border patrol agent because we love them both we see them both as dignity of creating the image of god we see them both as his treasure and the ones of them that are christ followers we see them as brothers and sisters too that's just bonus what a great bonus opportunity we're evangelists ambassadors we're lights we're salt we're a city because we have good news what's your bad news we get to listen. What's your bad news? Share with me what your bad news is. Okay. Hey, I've got good news. Jesus. How about you? What's your bad news? I've got good news for you. Jesus. And you? What's your bad news? I've got great news for you. Jesus. This is what it means to be an evangelon. That's who we are. We're defined by who he is. Is, is your problem your marriage? Hey, Jesus, your kids, Jesus. Think about our study through the book of John. You need bread? I've got Jesus. You need way, truth, and life? I've got Jesus. You need water? Hey, I mean, Jesus. This is, this is the answer it always comes back to. And that not, not in an impractical way. We get to solve these things practically as well. Of course, I disagree with secularists about how to solve these problems. That's another thing that we get as Christians is we're always going to be in disagreement with the secularists about how to solve the problems because they're trying to solve it without Jesus. We may agree with who, that some people need food or some people need money or some people need whatever, but we're always going to be going like, hey, but don't forget Jesus too. That's always the fundamental of who we are. We want people to face true justice. <coughs> we want them to face the, the justice that comes through grace and the work of Jesus Christ. That's our big picture plan. When I see the injustice, and, I, and when I talk with my friends, with godly, mature brothers and sisters whose skin is black, for example, they have examples of injustice. I don't want that. I want that to stop. And I want to be part of seeing that stop. But all of us, also, we, we all face injustice, but we're focusing on that one right now. Justice is so important to Christ followers. It's real, seriously, a big deal. Throughout God's Word, the requirements of mankind, we have 613 commandments in the Torah. They're narrowed down to the Ten Commandments. And then they're narrowed down again to Micah 6.8. The Hebrew Scriptures don't always apply to everyone for everything. That's true. But when a passage says, O man, I think it's more than just for a narrow group of people. This is for the race of mankind. 
He's told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. What a great evaluation tool for how we handle a crisis. In this crisis, am I showing justice? Am I loving mercy? Am I walking humbly with God? We get these great techniques and tools for dealing with God's instruction to the Hebrew people in the form of repentance in Isaiah 1.16 and through 18. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We don't embrace injustice in either direction. There are no innocent parties. See, that's pride. That's part of the root of pride. When we go to Israel, we always reference that. When we teach through things at Israel, people always want you to pick a side. And the truth is, there's no innocent parties in Israel. The Christians aren't innocent. The Jews aren't innocent. The Muslims aren't innocent. No one's innocent. Everybody's harmed everybody over there. The truth is, we're human beings. There are no innocent parties. All of us have things that we can confess. <clears throat> we all have sinned as individuals, as nations, as career paths, as colors, as status. We've all sinned. His concept of injustice revolves around the oppressed parties here, the fatherless, the widows, the strangers. They don't deserve justice. God wants justice. We seek justice because that's what He wants. This is something Christians can agree upon. There's none righteous, no, not one, not of our own merits. Do some history. Find me the innocent country, the innocent ethnicity, the innocent people group, the innocent whatever. I'll, I'll wait. Are we going to find it? Any historians in the room? Are we going to find an innocent group of people? You're not. This is part of our pride is, and letting go of our pride is to recognize, of course, there are things. We confess our sin of pride. The need to defend our group is not Christ-like. We all and each need a Savior. We have to be humble. The gospel is for everyone. It calls us to justice and mercy. These are good places for Christians to respond to a crisis. I'll say again, we must confess our pride. So as we look inward and we look at this, now we watch as perhaps, honestly, the most powerful man who ever lived. I think Nebuchadnezzar is arguably the most powerful man who ever, merely man, who ever lived in his own time. And we're getting to watch him deal with the sin of pride. And it strikes me that if God is going to strike down the pride of the most powerful man who ever lived, who is way more justified in being proud than we are, he must not honor our pride very much. He's going to learn the danger of this kind of pride. Will we? Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. How mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Or you might say, He shall reign forever and ever. Look at the language, by the way, here. King Nebuchadnezzar. Who is King Nebuchadnezzar writing to? In verse 1, who does he consider himself the king of? All people. And by the way, this is after being humbled. This is the humble King Nebuchadnezzar who considers himself the king to, of all people. To all people, all nations, and all languages. But look at the greeting, the greetings with peace. If you're getting a letter from Nebuchadnezzar, okay, 
if this letter, this memo is going out to everybody, and you get a letter from Nebuchadnezzar, the first thing you want it to say is, hey, just so you'll know, I'm not coming to kill you. That's always a nice thing. If you're a monarch and you rule the whole world, the first thing people want to know is, oh, shoot, why am I getting this letter, right? Is he out to get me? No, no, to all peoples, uh, this is the letter of peace. Peace be multiplied to you. But even more than that, as we watch our culture stumble through crises, can we see the constant struggle to stay alive as the enemy of peace? What stresses us out? What gives us anxiety? Running out of toilet paper? The stress of staying alive will give us anxiety, and he knows these are that most of the people in the world are struggling to stay alive every day. This is the Middle Eastern concept of shalom, complete peace, saturated peace. This is his greeting. Though he knows that the people of the world face plague and hunger and thirst and war and beasts and hot and cold, everything seems out to kill you. We see a salutation like this at least seven times in the Bible and more slightly different. So I would tell you, I hope peace is what gains hold in your heart. As Christians, we get to be agents of peace when everyone else is going nuts. That gets to be us. When we face crises, we, we get to shine. It's, it's, a, it's what we're made for. It's why it's part, in the, within the world, again, we're not from here. That's what Jesus told Pilate. Oh, no, my followers aren't from here. No, no, if, if they were, they would be rising up against you right now, but they're not. They've got bigger matters. We have bigger fish to fry. We have eternity to be dealing with. Plagues? Of course we make adaptations. We try to love each other through it. We wrestle. We try to follow the leadership of our leaders, all these different things. But fundamentally, the truth is, I mean, we're not from here. If you kill us, you just send us home. We don't want to go, but if we knew, we probably would. I hope peace gains ground in your lives. Where does the peace come from? We'll wrap up here. This is Nebuchadnezzar saying this. It seems like a good idea to tell you what I've recently learned from one of the gods. In fact, the Most High God. Plus, you may wonder why I've seemed a little absent for a little while. Seven little whiles, whatever that is. You probably wonder where I've been for a little while. They add in this little worship chorus here. We'll come back and begin to unpack this. We, the reason we get to choose something other than pride is because pride is founded in this concept of stress and struggle and fighting for what is ours and demanding what is ours and, and what about my needs and what about my stances and what about my rights. And, and again, there's a place for that conversation. We're part of that conversation, but we're not defined by that conversation. We're not defined by that. We're defined by the fact that we are representatives of the Prince of Peace. We carry His name. We don't just bear His image, although everyone we engage with does and therefore must be treated with the dignity of, of treating with Almighty God Himself. They have His image. They are His treasure. No matter how evil or wicked or bad they are, no matter how deserving of punishment they may be, no matter how much we believe that they should be punished for something, we also love them authentically because of what Christ has done for us. This is the powerful source of our peace. Everything else is going crazy. Well, of course it is. They don't know the Prince of Peace. We do. 
what a great opportunity for us to show that, to exemplify that, to live that out. We can listen when others must shut down, we can listen. When others have to stymie, we can listen. We can empathize when no one else can. We can sympathize when no one else can. We can love and serve when no one else can because of who we serve and how He did that. So I pray that as you're considering, as you're wrestling, and only God knows what's next in 2020. If you ever wondered that, now we know it. How are we going to engage in whatever crisis is next as His representatives? Are we going to reach out? Are we going to be at peace? Can we love each other? Hope we can. Let's pray. Father, working backwards from this idea of pride and looking in my own heart and seeing pride there. Pride that in whatever its form is offensive to you. The pride of nationality or the pride of ethnicity or the the pride of rights or the the pride of my state or all of these things are things um, that I can rejoice in and celebrate in one way or another. But, But the only sense of pride I should have should be in what you are doing and what you have done in me. And that pride is really more humbling than anything else, that we would be humbled by that truth that when others, when others don't know what to do, and when we don't know what to do, we can rest in the truth that you do. You've solved this. We haven't yet, but you have. You have a plan. Our plans tend to stink. Help us to humbly accept yours, to follow your way the best that we can, to love when no one else can, to serve when no one else does, to suffer when no one else is willing, to serve because your son served, to forgive because he forgave, to suffer because he suffered. Thank you for this example. And I pray that this is the kind of church that though we don't have the ethnic diversity that we would probably love to have, we can have the love for every ethnicity. We can listen and hear and understand and love in whatever their life experiences are because of your son. I pray we'll be able to wrap up our brothers and sisters through your Son and the power of your Spirit in our arms and with our hearts and our listening ears and with the love that your Son creates in us as only followers of your Son can do. Amen.